Scripture comes from First uh, Peter 1, 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. For to an, uh, to an, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. For those who don't know me, my name is Emily, um, and I've been a part of Reunion for a little over a year now. And I've said this before, but we have new guests with us, so welcome. Um, those who are visiting for the holidays, those who are visiting to check us out, those of you who are online, um, you are welcome here. And I need to confess something to you all. Um, I am an introvert, and so that's why I started the way that I did. Um, and I feel like the amount of times I've had to speak publicly is probably not good for my health, but I bring up... <laughs> I bring up the introvertedness because I would love to know if anyone resonates with that statement. If you are an introvert, please, thank you. Give me a hand raise. I'm not going to ask you to stand up because that counters the whole being of being an introvert. We do not want to be the, the center of attention. But I mention it because y'all know how I feel today. Um, but I'm very proud to be representing the introverts today. Um, and as I was preparing for this sermon, I thought a lot about representation. Uh, I think there's a common misconception that introverts aren't public speakers, right? That's the role of the extrovert. That's who gets the mic. Uh, and while I was preparing to represent the introverts, I thought about all the other things that I was representing while I was on here. Um, because oftentimes there are specific people who get the mic. There are specific people that we see on TV and that we see in church, if we're going to be real today. Um, and I'm grateful to be part of a church that's amplified so many different voices. We've had a lot of different guest preachers join us in our short time um, in person. And it's been a joy to listen to them. It's been a joy to be one of them today. Um, but if I'm being honest, preparing for today, brought on a lot of pressure. I don't think I've been shy to share that with you this morning. Um, there were moments when I felt weak and I felt inadequate, but then I remembered that we serve a God that empowers us. We serve a God that goes out of his way to remind us um, that he gives us his power. So 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 says it like this, but he said to me, my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. And while this verse was an obvious encouragement to me as I was prepping, I don't want to overlook that it's also an invitation for all of us today. God's grace welcomes our weaknesses, welcomes your weaknesses. And while we talk about representation and the different voices that we've gotten to hear throughout this season, we must also take a look at what weaknesses we're broadcasting up here. 
Um, because as much as we'd like to believe that all of our weaknesses are welcome, when we only see a couple of them displayed on here, it starts to feel almost like an exclusive club. Um, I know, for example, I've been born and raised in the church. Um, I've watched preachers, religious leaders come up and talk about weaknesses in the past tense. So I used to get bad stage fright. I used to battle with alcoholism. I used to struggle with depression. And as someone listening from the audience, I would worry a little bit. I would ask, uh, my weaknesses are present tense, not past. Does that mean that they're not as welcome here? Does that mean that I have to wait to get over my stage fright to take the mic? Um, and so you see how it can quickly become very exclusive. And it became really, really important for me today to embrace those weaknesses and let them be represented to you all today. Um, I know my story is going to be very different from yours, um, but I hope as some of us were able to connect in our introvertedness that we can all connect in this. We are united in our weaknesses. Um, and when we come together in this commonality, we can be reminded that our weaknesses are welcomed here, past and present tense. And that's been one of the greatest lessons that I've learned this Advent season. My weaknesses don't separate me from God. They're actually a big part of the reason that Jesus came down to this earth. So while it may seem a little counterintuitive this week talking about hope, um, as we explore something that's super positive, that's healing, that's encouraging, we're also going to be looking at some of those weaknesses in ourselves and how they form a really important part of the story that Jesus wrote for us. But I know that that requires vulnerability, and that can be very scary. So I want to pray for us today, um, however posture that you want to pray today, but please join me. So God, I just thank you. I thank you for uniting us in something that seems so scary, that seems so little, that seems um, so disqualifying as weaknesses. But you, you did that intentionally, God, so that we can all come together in your grace. And today, as we learn about hope, as we learn about your story, help us be vulnerable enough to look at the details of our own stories, to hear the weaknesses that we try to hide from others, to hear the innermost parts of our voices that sometimes we don't even want to acknowledge, God. And so I thank you. I thank you for being present today. I thank you for Advent, Lord, and for your son, Jesus, who came to die for us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Alrighty. So a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Russell um, kicked off our Advent season with an illustration of a conversation between Jesus and us, something that we might be a little bit familiar with. So in this conversation, we find ourselves asking, God, are you there? Do you care? And Russell pointed out that God's response is revealed in the birth of Jesus. Yes, I care and I inserted myself into human history to show you that. Isaiah 7.14 puts it like this. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and birth a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. So God's response to our doubts, to our suffering, is to be with us. He became a part of our narrative, and he came down from heaven to be a part of our personal story. And throughout the New Testament, we see the results of Jesus inserting himself into different people's stories. A blind man who was suddenly able to see, 
a woman with an issue of blood all of a sudden healed, and a paralyzed friend able to walk himself out of the, the crowd. On his time of, on earth, Jesus had this habit of removing labels that defined people's identities and limited their stories. His power made perfect in our weaknesses. And his voice was also louder than society's voices, society that would tell these people that they were outcasts, that they were overlooked, and that they were incurable. But what does that mean for us today? What are the effects of Jesus inserting himself into our narratives? In the passage that was just read, Peter writes, if you want to follow along with me, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so I gather two main points here from this text. One, Jesus' birth into this world leads to our birth into a living hope. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what that means. But the second point is, while this hope is free to us, it was bought at a price. And that becomes very significant when we consider it later on. So I know personally for me, when I've thought about hope, I've considered it in the context of its use as a verb, not a noun. So I hope my boss doesn't email me today. I hope there's not a long line at Starbucks. I hope the Ford train gets here on time. If anyone rides the Ford train, you know it doesn't. Um, right. So hope in this form becomes tied to my expectations, to my desires, to what I want in the moment. But Peter is inviting us into something much deeper. Instead of our hope being rooted in something that we wish would happen, hope's foundation lies in a promise that has already been fulfilled. So one commentator describes it like this. The Christian is born to a living hope, no longer condemned to living a life of despair or wanton aimlessness, but alive with the hope that death and all its manifestations can be overcome just as Jesus was triumphant over death. So in other words, Jesus' resurrection gives us freedom from death, from sin, which in turn gives us purpose to walk in in life. There's this really great song that my sister actually hates. She's over here. Um, I'm just going to call her out real quick. Sorry, Kelly. Uh, and it's called Glorious Day by Passion. I used to listen to it while I was running because it's like, it just has this really great message. And it says this, I was buried beneath my shame. Who could carry that kind of weight? It was my tomb till I met you. I was breathing, but not alive. All my failures I tried to hide. This was my tomb till I met you. We were destined for death. We were destined to carry this burden that was way too heavy for us to bear. But when Jesus inserts himself into the narrative, he triumphs over death, and he gives us this new life that can be defined by hope. Um, and it's not a fantastical hope that is based in our own desires. It's not the type of hope that has to hold its breath, worried that we put our trust in the wrong person. We have assurance of this hope because it was paid for with blood. Um, and so when I was younger, I don't know if anyone else 
had this phase of loving Lizzie McGuire, Hilary Duff. <laughs> yes, love it. So uh, I'm going to put my parents on blast here a little bit. But again, remember the context. I was a young kid. I was shopping in New Jersey, which we did occasionally. Now that's super fun, retail therapy. But back then as a kid, I'm like, oh my goodness, I want to go home already. But I was given this promise that at the end of the day, I was going to get to watch Lizzie McGuire's movie. And that's a big deal, right? Because we saw her on like the tiny little screens that we grew up with, but now it's gonna be like Hilary Duff, like inch to inch. So I am with my mom. My mom's looking at me already. I am with my parents. We're finished shopping. I have my hopes up. I'm like, I'm ready for this. And we get into the car, and again, I'm a child, so I'm destined to fall asleep. I fall asleep with this hope that when I open my eyes, I'm gonna be at the movie theater. What happens instead is this. I open my eyes and I see a familiar flagpole, I see familiar trees, and I am devastated because I am at home and I'm just like, what has happened? And I was very dramatic as a child, so I really, really <laughs> guilted my parents after this. I did not believe anything that they said to me after that. I needed proof. I needed to see the paid ticket in my hand before I got my hopes up for anything else. Again, God bless my parents for dealing with someone as dramatic as myself. But the point of me sharing this story is we don't have to worry that our hope is rooted in mere words. We don't have to worry that it's just talk. Jesus actually took action for us. He died for us on the cross so that we could have salvation. There was a price paid for our living hope. And the word of God takes it one step further. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So while hope reveals what is not yet seen, faith assures that it will be there. In verse 8 of the passage that we read, Peter puts it like this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So this is a picture of how hope and faith work together to help us wait for what Peter calls the end result of our faith, the culmination of hope that is salvation. I don't want to spend too much time here, uh, but I think it's really important to define salvation because it has been presented differently to us. We have understood it differently. And at least personally, it was often illustrated in the context of threat. Repent and be saved or else. Receive salvation today or go to hell tomorrow. And, and don't misunderstand me. I know that there is reality behind those words. Outside of salvation, there's despair, there is conflict. Even with the hope of salvation, we're going to experience those things, believer or not. Um, and that's what makes this living hope so beautiful. In the face of our current reality defined by grief, defined by darkness, defined by sickness, hope paints a picture of what could be and gives us the patience to wait for it the perseverance to move towards it. And that's what Advent is about. Uh, Joseph said it, waiting. Not only for the day that commemorates Christ's birth, but also for his second coming. And while 
Christ's birth gets celebrated um, very widely with Christmas trees, presents, wreaths, the whole shebang. Jesus' second coming isn't quite as well received. Um, it doesn't get quite the same welcome. In fact, I had a friend who would skip church every single time my pastor would announce that he was going to preach about revelations or he was going to talk about the rapture. Um, there are many names for it, and again, we don't have so much time to talk about such an important topic, but when you only focus on this version of revelations and this version of, God, of Jesus' second coming, you skip a major part of the hope that Jesus died for. And so I want to read this for us. It comes from Revelations, right, the scary book that my friend never wanted to read from. Um, it's found in chapter 21, verse 4. Uh, sorry, verse 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I get it. It's a little scary there. It's a little scary of a picture. But then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her, for, for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the salvation that we hope for. This is our end result. And I love this fifth verse, right? He just finishes talking about how there will be no more mourning, no more tears, no more pain. And then he says this, write this down. It's like Jesus knows that I have trust issues after the whole Lizzie <laughs> McGuire fiasco. Write it down so when it happens, you have proof. This is the real deal. I am trustworthy, Another reassurance that what we put our hope and faith in is real. It was bought for at a price. So then the question becomes, why is hope so hard? Why is it that I know redemption is coming, but it's still so hard to face my present circumstances? That's the question that I kept asking myself over and over again in preparation for today. I was like, am I doing something wrong? Am I missing something? Because most days, my natural response to problems is not to hope. It's not to look towards, towards what I cannot see yet. And it's definitely not thinking about the new heaven and the new earth that is awaiting us. Um, and so while I was seeking answers in Jesus' story, I realized that there was a missing element here. If we are to explore how Jesus' birth changed the narrative of our lives, then we also have to consider our stories and the weight that they carry with them. We have to acknowledge that there is a battle between the two, between what Jesus says about us, what Jesus' story is, and what our story is, what we say about us. So as a social worker and a trauma therapist, my mind immediately jumped into, okay, therapy. Specifically, narrative therapy. I'm not an expert in this field. I've never actually facilitated this type of therapy. But with the power of Google, I was able to get an idea um, of narrative therapy, which is to focus on the client's story in order to identify the client's values and how they've helped and how they've hurt them 
throughout their lives. Here's what one description says. Narrative therapists focus on assisting people to create stories about themselves, about their identities, that are helpful to them. Through the process of identifying the history of values in people's lives, the therapist and client are able to co-author a new story about the person. And so Jesus becomes a narrative therapist of sorts. He seeks to co-author a new story defined by his grace and his hope, much like he did with the blind man, with the woman with the issue of blood, with the paralyzed friend. But in order to do this, we have to go back. We have to consider our past and what has truly shaped our core values today. But a common obstacle in this process of narrative therapy is when people begin to conflate their identities with the mistakes that they've made in their past. When this happens, people assign themselves labels that can feel very absolute. For example, if a person gets fired from their job, their story might become, I am a failure, versus I am someone who failed at this one job. If a person didn't live up to the expectation of a parent or a loved one, they might say, I am a disappointment, versus I am someone who disappointed someone else in this one way. The person who experiences a breakup might say, I am unlovable, versus I'm someone who hasn't been loved properly by this one person. So my question to us today is what labels have we assigned ourselves? What mistakes or struggles have defined our stories? Um, and I can't ask this question and not answer it myself um, as awkward and painful as it might be. Um, a little bit about my story is I was born and I was raised in a very conservative Latino Pentecostal church. So one could argue that my story had uh, Jesus in it from the very beginning, but that did not make anything easier growing up. Um, it didn't make anything easier when it came to finding hope. When I was a teenager, I struggled with low self-esteem, um, self-harm, suicidal ideation, and that was just not acceptable in the communities that I grew up in. Mental health in the Latino community, for example, is very taboo, uh, especially, and I want to acknowledge this, when survival has been the goal generationally and as a people, no one really stops to think about how mental health gets sacrificed to get there. And that's to be said amongst a lot of different communities, and so I just want to make that known. Um, but then we have mental health in the Christian community, and what we're met with is, you know, too blessed to be stressed. Don't let the devil steal your joy. Well-meaning phrases that can be internalized into some pretty dangerous messages. Um, and the label that defined me for a really long time was brokenness. Something is inherently wrong with me. And at the age of 15, I go back to church full-time. I took a little bit of a break. Um, and I was desperately trying to fit into this box that I thought would make me a good Christian. Um, and I thought that when I fit into it and if I could succeed in doing so, the pain that my mental health would bring me would disappear. Uh, but what happened instead, as you might have guessed, was a pattern was born. I worked really hard to ignore the pain that God was trying to help me process. And when the pain got too overwhelming because I was ignoring it, I self-sabotaged. Every time I failed at fitting into a box, I shrinked deeper into my depression. 
I remember I would sing um, and go to choir practice, and whenever I feel like I didn't do a good job, I would go home and I would fight the urge to self-harm. Some pretty contrasting things, right? Going to church for, for something that's supposed to fill you with light, but because you're defining your story with these different labels, you can't quite get there. And that's when the voice of shame really became loud in my life. I'm not good enough. I can't be forgiven. There is no hope for me. The purpose of me sharing this is that for almost a decade, my story was defined by this brokenness and by this shame. And even now, when I become too overwhelmed, that voice of shame comes back. You didn't pray enough today, and that's why you're stressed out at work. You got way too angry at the office, and you gave a bad example of who Christ is. And these types of perspectives keep us focused on the past when God is trying to usher us into a hopeful future. And so I pose the question again to us, what is your label? What voices make it hard for you to feel hope? For some of us, it's doubt. Are you there, God? For some of us, it's fear. Are you sure, God? For some of us, it's complacency. I don't want to, God. But God wants to co-author our stories towards hope. And I really love this idea of co-authoring because God is inviting me to take this journey with him. He doesn't push me to rewrite pieces that are too delicate for me to let go of just yet. But he does challenge me to consider how he sees me versus how I see myself in the lowest of moments. He hears the many voices that fight for our attention, and he tries, um, and, and those voices that try to steal away our hope, but he invites us to let him co-author our stories back to hope. So personally, there have been three things that have helped me enter into a co-authorship with God. And this is not a complete list. In fact, I would love to hear what pushes y'all towards hope um, after this, but these were some life-changing resources for me. Um, and that's why I shared what I did before, because y'all know where I was in terms of the voices of shame. So the first one was vulnerability, being honest with myself and being honest in my prayer life. Because often I would pray, because right, that was one of the boxes that I had to check off as a Christian, but I would not be honest in my prayers with God. And I... It took me a long time to get to that place because I was hiding so many things that God wanted to process for me. And what fits under this box of vulnerability is therapy, right? Again, taboo uh, in some of our cultures. But going to therapy uncovered some things that I was hiding from myself that I could then bring to God. God already knew them. He just needed me to catch up so that I could understand <laughs> and I could pray and be processed. Um, the second is community, having a group of people to be vulnerable with. Some of these voices, some of these labels seek to isolate us. They want us to feel like we're the only ones that have this problem. They want us to feel like we're alone in all of this, that we're different somehow in very negative ways. And so this is not going to be a cheesy plug for a union, um, but this is a community, and you are welcome here if you don't have one. Um, reunion has healed me so much in so many subtle ways. Um, I remember one day I had a hard week, and we were doing something with food because we love food here at Reunion. <laughs> if we have an event, it's 
almost guaranteed that you're going to get fed. Um, and I remember I was talking to Katie, Verdazel here, and um, I told her, I was like, you know, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm so sorry that I'm tired and that I'm not, like, all there today. And I remember Katie was just like, you don't have to show up in any certain way. I'm paraphrasing. I'm paraphrasing. I'm not as eloquent as Katie. But she was like, what, however you want to show up today, you're welcome here like that. You don't have to show up in any particular way. Um, and that moved me. That moved me as someone who felt like I had to show up to church perfect, that I had to show up to church checking off every boxes, and then to kind of be sitting there and like, okay, I don't have to be this way. I can be however I want to be. Rachel today um, was asking me how she could encourage me, and I was just like, wow, y'all, like, this is church. This is, this is community. You know, she offered to, like, wave her hand, to, to scream and shout if I needed a distraction, um, but that's what community does for us. Community makes us feel less alone, um, and so if you don't have, you know, a group of friends, if you don't have family, you are welcome here, um, and I truly mean that. Uh, and then the last one is acceptance. Acceptance of yourself and acceptance of your story. Something that I found really um, life-changing when I was doing this is God didn't replace our story. He added Jesus to it so that we wouldn't be alone. Thank you, Brandon. <laughs> yeah, I just like want us to let that sink in. God didn't want to rewrite us. You know, he called us, he knows us, and he was like, you know what, I'm going to add something to help you, not take away from you, to reaffirm those voices that tell us already that we're not enough, that we're not perfect. Um, and another thing that we need to be acceptant of is help. Help from others, help from your community, but also help when it doesn't look like what you want it to look like. So like I said, I grew up in, in a Pentecostal church, and so don't be alarmed for what I'm about to tell you, but ministry, uh, not ministration, how do you say it? I'm trying to translate it in my head. Um, the altar call is really important. And so oftentimes you'll see people falling to the ground. And again, nothing to be alarmed of. It's just part of our culture. And when I was struggling with this depression, um, there was one time that a preacher came up and she was like, if you need healing, come to the front. And I was like, I'm there, let's go. Uh, and so she, she had the habit of having people fall. And so, you know, I fell and I was like, great, I'm going to get up and I'm going to be healed. I'm going to be healed today. And that's not what happened. A week later, I had the same problem. But what happened internally was, oh, I must have done it wrong. I must have found a way to fall in the incorrect manner, and now I can't receive Jesus' healing. Um, but what was really happening is help, for me, looked a certain way. And it didn't take years later for me to realize that the way Jesus was helping me was through therapy, was through counseling with um, my pastors. And talking to people who understood me and who got what I was going through. Um, so to recap and to end soon, we have vulnerability, we have community, and we have acceptance. Three things that can help point us back to hope. Point us back to a life-changing truth that is a part of each and every one of our stories, of your stories. This truth that God loves you so much that he gave his only son to die for you. Jesus paid the price so that in our darkest moments, we could be assured that our hope is trustworthy. 
wherever you may find yourself in your story today, I just want to let you know that God is inviting you to hope. And so I want to pray for us to end. God, thank you for your hope. Thank you for coming down to show us how much you love us, to show us how much you want to empower us in our weakness, God. Lord, as I as we leave this week and as we go back to our respective lives um, and it becomes harder to see what has not yet been, I just ask for strength and for courage to enter into hope, for strength and courage, God, to go against those voices of shame, of fear, of doubt, of weakness that tell us that there is no hope, that there is no future worth waiting for, God. I just pray against that today, Lord Jesus. And I ask for your hope to fill each and every person who is here in this room today. And above all, God, I just thank you. I want to take this time to thank you for giving us all a voice, for empowering our voices, and for loving us enough to want to co-author our stories into hope. In Jesus' name we pray.